Yeah, okay. Well, good afternoon everyone. Uh, or good morning actually. Like uh, some of you is afternoon. Uh, Soraya is afternoon. Daria at night. Uh, so most of us here in um, yeah in not uh, in southern hemisphere or in in Asia like we are still early in the morning. We just started to uh, start our work today, and it is good to try something different today. Uh, we have the meetup in the morning because we have a special people, special guests who will be talking to us today. So before I in, uh, introduce the speaker, so I'll just introduce myself for those who, who uh, haven't known me. Like uh, my name is Yunisari, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of uh, UX Indonesia. So I'm hosting the UX Indonesia meetup every week, and it is great that uh, we have the opportunity to see a lot of um, uh, meet a lot of uh, expert thought leaders in the field of uh, user experience, in the field of um, technology, education. So we always have a lot of inspiring people coming and uh, sharing with us. Um, this is like a time, uh, well, although this is not the best time in a way that uh, many of us are still in lockdown and um, still at home, some of us already go back to office, but everything has changed into new normal. Like uh, I believe that everybody here um, experienced the same. And but this is also good opportunity because uh, we can meet a lot of people, like uh, people who normally we could not meet, uh, like our own speakers today, uh, Dr. Daria Loy. She has been to Indonesia. And uh, was it last year, Daria, or the year before? Mm, two years ago. Yeah, the year before. Yeah. Two years ago. And uh, yeah, so yeah. it was so difficult to ask her to come to Indonesia two years ago because she was super busy. And now we can have her in, in our midst. And uh, today she's going, um, she's the senior director, head of product design of Mozilla Corporation. And um, yeah, so Mozilla has been supporting a lot of uh, uh, development of HCI and UX in Indonesia. So it is good to have Daria in uh, uh, sharing her work. Uh, I don't know if it will be related to Mozilla, but she mm -hmm. has done a lot of amazing work. And I, I think it is a great opportunity to have you all here. So I, I won't talk more, but I will just introduce, um, give the time to Daria to present yourself and things that you want to present. And for those of you who want to uh, ask questions, uh, please write down on, um, on the chat portal and we are going to discuss it after that. Okay, time is yours. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Eunice. Well, first of all, I'm really happy to be here and that we, I have this opportunity to present to you all. Uh, Indonesia has got a very special place in my heart um, and I feel I have a lot of friends and I can't wait to be able to come there again. Uh, enjoy the wonderful food and the wonderful people. So hopefully soon in the future. So today I'd like to present to you uh, some work in progress that I'm doing at Mozilla and uh, and um, hopefully let's see i also have a video we haven't tried out let's see if the audio works we'll all find out very soon um so let me see if we can go to the next slides but maybe not oh it's not letting me okay okay so a little bit about me uh as you can tell i've got a kind of unusual accent that is because i'm originally from italy but I lived in Australia for almost 10 years before moving to the US. Uh, I'm based in Portland, Oregon on the West Coast. I originally moved there uh, from uh, Melbourne, uh, where I was working at RMIT University for almost 10 years, as I said. Before that, I was an architect in Italy. I moved to the US originally to work for Intel Corporation. I was at Intel for almost 14 years. And about a year ago, I decided to move uh, uh, to Mozilla. So I've got a mixed uh, hybrid background. I started, as I said, as an architect and industrial designer, uh, but I very soon after moving to, the, uh, to Australia, I started specializing in participatory design. And also uh, I started a practice in user experience design and research. 
So as I said, I'm head of product design at Mozilla, uh, but I also wear many other hats. I love uh, working uh, with people and I love being involved in, um, in different organizations that I believe in. Uh, so I, for instance, uh, I'm on the board of directors for Democracy Lab. It's a very interesting non-for-profit based here in the United States. Uh, I recommend checking it out. It's a very interesting model uh, and platform that they have. Um, I also have a position at Newcastle University in Australia. Uh, I have uh, multiple roles uh, in the participatory design community. And also I am uh, on the steering committee for a design center in Oros University in Denmark. And this is to say that I really love uh, the opportunity to collaborate across disciplines and across geographies um, is the area um, uh, that I there is the opportunity that where I feel that I can learn the most because you can learn so much from people that are working in areas that are maybe related to you, but not necessarily your expertise. And let me see, uh, Eunice, would you like me to look at uh, the uh, question as they come or would you like me to wait till the end? Uh, well, I think just continue your uh, presentation and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we're going to have we'll the, do it at the end. Yeah, but maybe maybe you can uh, explain a little bit about participatory design because yes, yes. yeah, a lot of people yes. asked on this. Area. Yeah, I asked because I saw someone was asking. So participatory design, one way of looking at it, you know, probably you are all more familiar with user-centered design. And so user-centered design, as the word kind of says, you know, is really a design practice that places the user at the center. Right. And so it's a practice of design where you look at uh, including the perspective of and user in the design of a product or a service. Participatory design um, takes that a little bit further in that it's really about involving the end user in the design process. So it's not as much only about uh, learning from the user what they want and then designing something as a designer. This is really about in engaging the end user as a co-designer in the process. Uh, and so it becomes very much uh, a act of uh, co-design with the end user. Of course, it can be um, very extreme where every single thing is designed together with the user. It can be more uh, subtle where the um, user is involved in some specific decision making in the process, but not in every single step. But really, you know, one way of looking at it is to uh, look at the words. So participatory design is really about participation of the end user in the design process, active participation versus user-centered design, which is really about designing with the user in mind. So a slightly different kind of uh, involvement of the end user. There's some overlap, but there are some differences. I highly recommend, and I can send you later on a link, there is actually an entire website um, that the participatory design community put up, and there are all the proceedings of previous conferences. Actually, in fact, uh, uh, is a biennial conference and uh, it happened two weeks ago. Uh, it was completely online and all the proceedings are available for free. So I'm very happy later on to forward the links to Eunice and then she can forward to all of you more information. Hopefully this is a, and if this is not enough as an answer, we can maybe at the end of the presentation, um, you can ask me more. Uh, more question. I'm very happy to talk uh, for hours and hours about participatory design is uh, my main uh, community and practice. Um, so here is what I wanted to show you is uh, in the team that I lead uh, um, at uh, Mozilla, uh, we have a, a process that we use as well as our own motto. And so what you see there on the uh, top left is really our own mantra, our own philosophy. And that is that we look at the bringing the voice of the user at the center of every product that we imagine, we design, we build and we launch. Now, the reason why I use those four words is very specific because quite often what happens when you try to bring an end user perspective in the design of a product quite frequently um, is brought only in some moments of the design process. For instance, you might ask a question through a survey or through interviews at the beginning of a product uh, development uh, and then uh, uh, at the beginning you ask what the user might be interested in, what they might like, what they might want from a product and then you analyze the data and use the data to create some concept. But then you move on. 
In other cases, you might actually engage with the user when you're testing, you're conducting usability testing, you know, when already you created a concept and you're really now trying to make refinement to decision. The reason why I put Imagine, Design, Build and Launch, this is really to, to draw the attention to the fact that um, in my team, um, we very much look at bringing the voice of the user from the very beginning of the process till the very end. So it's not something that you sprinkle in some parts of the process, but then you forget about the users, which quite often in industry occurs. It's really about being very uh, methodical and specific about having end user involvement and a, a voice uh, from the very beginning throughout the development process as you're iterating till the end. What you see in the middle is another way of saying that story with a little bit more detail. So this is actually the process that we, we use. Um, you know, it shouldn't be like for those that are versed in user-centered design, it shouldn't be a big surprise. This is just more our interpretation, but it's a very standard process. So we start by defining the problem, what it is that we are trying to resolve, whom for, who are the users, what do they need, why do they need that. So there is an area, the first starting point in all our processes is really to defining the question and the actors in the question and the entire context around both question and, uh, and the actors. And then from there, we move to the ideation phase. But one thing that I want to show you right away in this illustration is that it, first of all, is a circle. Quite often, uh, you uh, might have seen a lot of design processes where they are quite like a line. You go from A to B to C to D, bingo, done. But actually, this is to draw the attention. As you can see, there are multiple lines that are coming back and forth. And this is to show that actually the design process that we use is very much an iterative one. And by that, I mean that uh, we may start by defining a problem, a user and the needs. And then we might even start at some point ideating. But when we start then reiterating that ideation and those ideas with users, we might have to redefine the problem because, you know, you might have assumptions and hypotheses that when you start now testing many more practice with end users, you might have to redefine them. And so it's very much an iterative process from one step to the other, as well as an iterative process between two steps in this circle. So, you know, you iterate between definition ideation and then you arrive at a point where you feel that your ideation, your opportunity space, what you think are the, 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 the opportunities of what you might be able to develop as a product you feel more strongly about and why do you feel strongly about? Um, and here I'm going to want to now to stop a second uh, your attention from the center of the slide and more on the top right. So we basically make decision on when we want to step into building things only when we have satisfied um, with data and with research uh, three important areas. One is the area of the end user, one is the area of the market, and the other one of the technology. So by this, I mean that as you're doing definition and ideation, we continuously test and iterate with end users, and therefore we accumulate information and data to ensure that whatever ideas, whatever concept we're coming up with makes sense, is aligned with the initial user problem, and they really actually is something that the, the users actually resonate with. And then, however, that's not enough. The other thing we do in that process is really to do a lot of market landscape. We really do a lot of uh, analysis to understand uh, what is actually the market opportunity here. And the reason for doing that is that, for instance, I may come up with a great idea that resolves uh, a problem uh, for a specific number of users. But then I might discover through uh, an analysis of the market that really there is no opportunity for that product to have a future because the market maybe is not ready or maybe there are so many good competitors there's no need to create a new one and so there's always data you find from the market analysis that really tells you whether or not the way in which you are trying to resolve the problem is one that has got legs from the perspective of becoming a marketable product because ultimately you want to design products not only that people like and want but also that people are prepared to take and to buy, to purchase or to sort of uh, license, right? Because, the, you know, you can imagine like that there are many cases where you may like something, but not enough 
to bring it in your life, right? And so it's important to look at the market because of that. In parallel, we also look at the technology. And why is that? Because for instance, you may have cases where you come up with a great product opportunity, there is even a market, but then you discover that the technology is not ready. It's just not ready, it's not there, right? You might discover that is you need to wait another five years before the technology is ready. And therefore you cannot launch that product within a year if your target was to launch a product within a year. And so those are three important parameters that we always look at. Of course, those parameters fluctuate and change depending on where you are in an organization. Because for instance, I've been in my career in product organizations as well as uh, research and development organizations. And of course, in the research and development organizations, there is less pressure to ship products in a very short time frame because the purpose of R&D is really to look at the very far away future. But if you are in a product organization, you actually want to ship something within a reasonable uh, short amount of time, right? And so <laughs> that actually tells you uh, how you can take those three parameters into account. Because if you know that you need to ship a product and the technology underlining that, that solution is not going to be available for 10 years and you need to ship in three, year, in three years, of course, you won't be able to do that. So going back now to the center image and so we go from definition as i said and iterate with ideation and then through those three lenses we come to a, a point where we make a decision that we've got enough data enough ground to really substantiate a reasoning for going forward to the next step and the next step is build and build is when you actually do some more technical prototypes and you really things that you can put in the hands on on the oven users not in the ends, uh, in the terms that they can understand what the concept is about, they can actually utilize the product for a certain amount of time. It's a different type of testing. And again, you can see there that there is actually a back and forth in iteration. Why is that? Because again, as you know, when you start building something and then you put in the ends of a users, you may find that what you originally built was not as good as you thought. And in fact, you might have to go back to your ideation drawing board and redefine a little bit how you're going to create that product, right? And so there is a lot of go back and forth and iteration also there. And then when you arrive at a point of stability, you go now and start testing, you know, you test even more further to really go more nitty gritty onto usability, feasibility and viability. And then you can eventually graduate to an evaluation that is really a pre-market launch, which is more specific to that. And then you're going to launch. And then after launch, very important is measuring. Because quite often what happens is that um, you may ship a product and then you go. But the reality is that no products are stopping time. You really always want to measure how the product is doing in the marketplace because you may want to iterate it further. If it's software, you want to constantly upgrade it and make it better. But also you want to measure because you may now start again your process of definition for a new product and the data that you might collect by measuring the previous product may be very helpful and useful to create the foundation for a new product that you may design. So I know that I said a lot is quite complicated, but we can go back to this later on if you wish to. So now I'd like now to take you, now that I told you how we do things in our team, in my team, I'd like to sort of uh, tell you a little bit more about participation. There was a question earlier. So here is my proposition to you and what I really, if there was one thing that I'm hoping that you take home with you and you think about tomorrow when you rethink through about this presentation, if there was one thing that I was, you know, hoping that would stay with you is this, what's on this slide right now, which is my proposition, proposition to you is this, to design meaningful experiences, meaningful experiences for the user of those experiences. I'm proposing to you that this design should be an act of participation, of inclusion, and deep engagement with the communities that you want to enable, you want to support, you want to enrich through what you create. So this goes really to the core of participatory design. So what I'm saying here is that my proposition to you that I wish you to consider for your practice is consider that 
If you really want to bring meaning, meaning in people's lives, if you want to enable and support and enrich the communities that you're designing for, please do consider that design is an act of participation, is an act of inclusion, and is an act of deep engagement. And that is actually quite important commitment to make as a developer and as a designer. We're going to come back to that in a second. So now I want to give you a little bit a case study of something that we're working on right now, just to tell you a little bit more about the process. So this is actually a, an area that I've been working on for several years. I started when I was at Intel and then I took it uh, in a different spin, in a different direction, because I'm in a completely different organization now. Um, but really the problem that with my team, one of the focus areas that we, my team, were focusing on is really uh, some of the issues that surround older adults. So I'm talking about the 65 plus population, you know, older adults. And what we as a user problem we are focusing on is that we know from research that there are older adults have very limited ways of socializing. You know, and they do have a big worry about loss of independence, right? And, uh, uh, and what we know from research is that when you have a non-sufficient socialization uh, in general, but in particular for older adults, your uh, sense of isolation and loneliness increases. And this actually is, uh, besides the fact that it is not nice, but also has got a huge impact on the quality of life of that individual, increases morbidity and mortality rates. So, you know, you have individuals that die faster and you have individuals that actually get sick more frequently and faster and therefore their quality of life degrades. Of course, as you can imagine, with COVID-19, that was a problem before with COVID-19, this problem has become even bigger um you know it's really disrupting uh, uh, the routines the social networks and all the support services that older adults had in place before so it was already a difficult issue before now with coronavirus this issue has become massive and this is by the way a global issue it's not just one or the other country is all over the world so this is the user problem that we started with with my team for one of the projects so now I, I am so hopeful that I will be able, and let's see how that works out. If it doesn't work, we'll have to give up. Uh, let me see. Hmm. If I can play this video and if you can hear it, which is gonna be an interesting one. I'm going to pause a second because I want to know if you can hear the audio. Can you give me a sign? No, we, we can't really hear. You can't hear the audio because that's what I was kind of... Uh, uh, let me one second, okay? Okay, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to do a voiceover and apologize, apologies for the audio and I suspected this was going to happen. But I'm going to do a voiceover for you and explain what is happening in the video. By the way, the audio, there's not much words, it's just mostly soundtrack and, and uh, sounds, it's not really any narration. But I'm going to give you some narration. As the, but the video is playing, right, Eunice? Uh, yeah, the video is playing very, uh, like a... Kind of like there's a delay or something like that. So I think okay. uh, how it works so, like when you turn off your uh, yeah like yeah, you take off your earphone then it will work because it's your Google Meet. <laughs> yeah, I'll 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 give you the voiceover if that's okay with you, okay. and I'll tell yeah, you what's sure. happening here. Yeah. So what you see here is this is actually not work that I've done is work by a, a Superflux lab. And you see here in older adults, this is a, a kind of a speculative concept just to make a point. And I'm going to pause it for a second. So what you saw so far is that basically this individual is having a meal and there is this red, this green fork. And the fork is a smart, intelligent fork that tells you how many calories are consuming, right? Now you see him sitting watching TV and he has got a smart and intelligent cane that tells, you know, how many steps you took throughout the day. And as you go through, you see that the, the, the cane is connected to the phone and he's telling, hey, you didn't do all your steps. Get up. 
just take the cane and start walking. What are you doing? You shouldn't watch TV right now, right? And so this is uh, this and the previous one and what is happening right now also, which is a smart bed that tells you when it's time to go to bed. These are all examples of technologies. Of course, they are not real technologies. This is a speculation and is a kind of a, a video that was created to make a point about technology for older adults. Quite often, technologies for older adults are designed exactly as in this video, which is designed to tell to the person, do this, do that, time for bed, time for walk, good night, eat this, don't eat that, you know, etc., etc. As you see the video continuing, you start seeing something pretty funny with this that happens with the user, which is basically the user starts getting a little bit annoyed <laughs> by this uh, smart device that tells it, tells him what to eat and not to eat, what, when to walk and when to rest. And he's starting to get a bit annoyed because he really is uh, having like someone, an object, a technology telling him what to do instead of actually listening to what he wants to do, right? And so he's, in a way, what you see now is putting the cane under the couch. Why? Because the cane is annoying. You know, he never asked for a cane that tells him what to do. He never asked for a cane that sends messages to his daughter uh, so that the daughter can send messages to tell him, please uh, get up now. He never asked for a bed that tells him when it's time to go to bed. He never asked any of that. Yet someone decided to design this technology, right? And then you see as the video continue, this is actually a pretty funny moment where he works out a stratagem to trick the technology. So what he does, he created a salad on the side, he pretends to eat, the salad with the smart fork, so the smart fork is happy, but in reality, in the meantime, is actually eating the food he wants to eat. <laughs> so yeah, what you see here over and over again now is that basically the user got fed up, he got frustrated with the technology, was poorly designed, and now what he does, instead of doing what the technology is telling him to do, he does exactly the opposite and he tricks the system and now he gives the cane to a child so that the child can walk around and kind of do the steps for him. So I'm going to pause the video right now and I'm happy to send you um, the video separately. It's available online. But this is really um, a video that, again, was not designed to say uh, this is how you should do things. It was designed to say this is how you shouldn't do things. And so, so here is basically not what I Can you please mute? Someone is... Thank you so very much. I appreciate that. Um, so that is an example of what not to do. Certainly from my perspective, in the perspective of my team. So I'm not interested as a team. We do not design uninvited guests. We're interested in designing invited guests. <laughs> Nobody wants to have guests that were not wanted or invited. So how do you do that? Is really to do that process that I mentioned earlier, which is to listen, to observe, and then ideate reiterate your concept and then start again, repeat and repeat, ideate, iterate, test, repeat, listen, observe, ideate, and you continue going in a loop till when you are a product that really is actually a product worth putting in the world. So, in relation to the problem area of the older adults, we have done exactly the process. We are in, in this in this process right now. So through the process so far, we, between interviews and survey, we kind of reached out to um, more than 1,700 people. We interviewed a number of experts. We, we conducted a number of market landscapes. We've done a lot of user test rounds on our concept. We went for 29 concepts to, down to three where we are right now. And so this is really to say that we look at the user problem that I mentioned earlier, and through that loop, you know, we started at the beginning, you know, around February. Right now, we basically arrived to this point in time where we did really reach out to a huge amount of users globally. And also we interviewed experts on uh, senior adults, on care facilities, etc. And we looked at the market landscape and we looked at the technology. So. For instance, from the perspective of the market, what we know are many things, and I'm not going to tell you all of them, but we know that the uh, 60 uh, years old plus population doubled, right? Doubled 
uh, <laughs> in a very short amount of time. And there is actually projection that by 2050, there will be 2.1 billion older adults in the world. 2.1 billion is a lot. <laughs> it's a big number, right? Also, we know this in, just in the US, and this is just in the US, 70% of older adults will require, a, you know, some type of long-term care. So actually, this is a big, a big issue, right? It's a very big market. We also know that there is a lot of uh, expenditure around this market. Um, this group, uh, group of people spend a lot of money on tech products. They spend a lot of money on trying to keep themselves healthy. And there is a lot of money spent to try to keep them healthy and to create an infrastructure for them. So it's actually, from an economic standpoint, is a massive area and is growing, right? Also, what we know is that, and this is also something where we found through our own research, that the privacy and security of personal data for this specific user target is incredibly important because actually older adults are very frequently targeted for scams, for fraud, right? They are prey of a lot of not very nice people. They really try to take advantage of them because in some cases they are not as tech savvy, right? And so actually this is an, an area where um, there is a lot of vulnerability of these users and where there are opportunities to really uh, enable them to have a better use of technology that is healthier and that is more secure and private. From a user standpoint, through the research, you know, the 1700 people that we reached out to so far, we've learned a lot of things. But here I'm going to tell you the very, very high level things of what we've learned that people want in this age group. What we found is that really they, and you can see on the left the point and on the right a quote from one of the users that we interviewed. But, you know, the first thing is that we learned is that this user target really wants help with troubleshooting tech issues and troubleshooting problems that they may have in their house across distance. And also they want help with what relates to coordinating their schedules. Right? So there is an area that is really about don't want it to uh, not having infrastructure around them to help them to to coordinate schedule and troubleshooting. And also in some cases, because their, their families and relatives are not living nearby, they're far away. In other cases, we also found is that even if the relatives are nearby, when you are in a certain age, you sometimes don't ask for help because you don't want to be a burden or you don't want to look um, not good enough, right? And so there is a lot of kind of issues around this and therefore technology may offer an opportunity to bridge this gap. Another thing that we have learned is that actually there are this target user has got a huge issues with manage, managing how to bring diverse type of technologies in their lives. Uh, onboarding uh, into new technologies is a huge barrier for adoption. Uh, quite often, this user segment tries a new technology because it needs to, and then they give up very quickly because it's so difficult and it's such a hostile environment for them that you know the onboarding really breaks out any hope that they had to be able to utilize that technology. And therefore, they decide to give up. And now, as you can imagine, with COVID, where a lot of people want to use more technology, they want to start using Zoom or using Skype or using Google Hangouts, you know, these are not easy technology for some target users, right? Yet, they have a need to be able to see other people because they are locked inside their homes. Another thing that we have found is that there is a lot of stigma, right? There is a lot of judgment of self and judgment of others. So nobody wants to be to feel because he's not capable of uh, taking care of him or herself to feel inferior, right? So when you're at this age, you want to be independent. And therefore, you know, there is a lot of uh, feeling that uh, they may be labeled and as uh, not being uh, uh, fast enough, savvy enough, uh, capable enough. And, and therefore, there is a lot of judgment of themselves and the perceived judgment that people may have onto their category. There really also is an impediment of them utilizing technology to their advantage. And then there is a huge fear, anxiety of privacy and security risk. And there is a basically a lack of usage of technology just because they're overwhelmed, you know, and the quote there is very indicative of this, of this direction where, you know, the user is feeling technologically challenged, 
right? And because this technology is challenged, when the technology says, uh, do you want to do this or you do you want to do that? Do you approve uh, to give me uh, this security um, uh, authorization? They don't understand what the question is and therefore it becomes incredibly uh, overwhelming. And therefore, because of that, again, they decide not to utilize the technology, which is really a shame because there are some technology that would bring them actually a great quality of life improvement. So this is what some of the summary or some of the things we've learned, the key points that we've learned uh, by interviewing users. Of course, it's just a summary. What we've done then is to say, okay, based on all this data from market, from user kind of interviews and surveys, etc., we at that point, at one point, decided, okay, now it's time to put sticks in the ground and make a decision on what are the design principles that we are going to put and stick with till the end. And this is very important because when you're doing a product, quite often it happens that you have got very good intention at the beginning. And then when you're trying to develop the product, you kind of somehow forget or, you know, you make compromises on the promises that you gave to yourself. And so it's very important to put down what are the principles that we are going to stick with when we're going in the product development phases further ahead, which are more practical, what are the things that we will not compromise? What are the things that we will always want to go back to and verify to see if we kept our promises to the users? And so these are some of the examples of those promises. And then from a technology, now here is where I can only tell you so much because as I said, we're still in the product development, so I can't quite share more than I have on this slide, but you know, I'll do my best. At this moment in time, we're now doing product development. And so I can tell you that one of the focus areas of the technologies that we're looking at, some of which are in the machine learning area, but not only, uh, are more focused on a suite of products that are around health and wellness, specifically targeted for this user segment. We have another entire suite of product concept in, that we are starting to prototype in a more advanced ways around security and privacy. Again, very specifically targeted to their specific uh, user target and their specificity of their problem because, of course, they are different from other parts of the population. We are also looking at you know, leveraging different type of machine learning to create personalization. This is very important because it's very easy to think that everyone that is a 65 and above is all the same. But the reality, we know that we're all different, right? And to say, you know, to someone you're an older adult and therefore I design something that is for all older adults is absolutely ridiculous. You know, there are, is a big portion of the population and each one has actually different needs. And so you need to actually find ways to personalize the, um, the behavior of the device or the behavior of the technology you're designing so that the individual user can have a range of control and ability to really, uh, to feel that the product is really trying to address their specific problems versus a blanket statement on um, everybody that is of that age range. And then one other big area of suite of products we're, we're developing are more in the tech supportive management, again, very specifically to the needs of this target segment. So that's what we are. We're basically what we call checkpoint one. And so checkpoint one is when we look at it when we are between ideate and build. And we are at checkpoint one in the sense that right now we just did our own review uh, internally and we have all the data that really tell us that we've got a very solid set of product concepts that are really ready to graduate to building more specific uh, um, uh, working uh, uh, prototypes uh, so that we can enter more in a build and testing kind of part of the phase. So that's where we are there where we are right now. We just two days ago graduated to the next phase. So I'm going back to that sentence that I told you earlier on. Because, you know, I cannot tell you more about the project, but, you know, ultimately um, with this talk, really, this is the core of what I want you to sort of focus on. If you want, in the case of older adults, but it can be applied to 
every possible user, if you like, right? Um, if you really want to bring meaning in people's lives, in this case, in the context of older adults, you need to really focus on a design process that engages those end users in, in the design. So it's not, just, it's not just a matter of doing a couple of surveys at the beginning. It's not just a matter of asking a couple of questions, or maybe it's not just a matter of doing some usability testing later on. It's really about going back to end user over and over and over again to really include them in that decision making. And, and it becomes is absolutely fundamental for any type of target segment, but particularly for those target segments that are so different from you that you really don't know what it means to be them. And so the only way to design for someone that is so different from you, you'll never be like them, right? Unless you wait for a, a few decades, be less for me because I'm a bit older. But, you know, it really is about, um, the way I like to think about it is imagine a table and around the table, you have all the stakeholders that you need to have for the product to be successful. You have a software engineer, you have a product designer, you have a usability testing, you've got this, you've got that, you've got the business person, you name it. Around the table, you have all the capabilities that are needed for a product to be successful. But there is one chair, one chair, they should always be empty and available. And that one chair is for the end user. Because the end user should really be sitting at the table with those that make decisions on the product because the product will have to impact their lives. And so it's very important uh, to remember this. And so this is really at the core of participatory design practices that to think about this table, visualize it in your head, all the experts are sitting around and there is one chair for the end user. And he's sitting at the same table, the same type of chair, the same level. He's an equal stakeholder in the process. And so this was the end of my presentation, but before, you know, maybe we open if there are questions or comments, I just want to acknowledge uh, the four individuals that are on the screen right now. You know, they're not in the, the call, but I think it's very important that I acknowledge these are members of my team. They are people that are in my team and they are absolutely the people at the core of this process, the project that I just talked about. And so I don't want to make you sound like that I is all my, my doing, all my work is actually the work of a team. And so I really want to acknowledge Thomas, Heather, Nicole and Dan, because they are really the core of the work uh, that I just shared briefly with you. And so with this, I'd like to, um, to say thank you and see if there are questions, maybe. Sure. Thank you, Daria. Uh, thank you for a very interesting presentation. Uh, so how long have you been doing this uh, project in Mozilla, like uh, this team this and yourself? Yeah. This one in particular, this specific yeah. project? Yeah. Yeah, this specific project we started in February. Ah, okay. Okay. So is it going to be like a long-term project or? Um, well, right now, basically, because we graduated to the next phase, uh, now, right now we're making decisions of, because we came up with a lot of different tools uh, of products, right? Suite of products. And we're going to basically pick one by one. We're, we're doing a prioritization and we're going to tackle one by one the small in ingredients and do one by one instead of doing them all in parallel. Um, and so it's going to be a, a way of uh, to be faster, basically. We're going to do basically sprints now for each in, in individual component because those four focus areas that I mentioned, all of them have got multiple usages and multiple smaller product components, right? Mm -hmm. And so we are basically making prioritization amongst those four areas. And then mm -hmm. within each of those, we're kind of making a prioritization from the one that really are the top of importance to develop right away and we develop them so that we can kind of start uh, fielding them and move to the next one so it's going to be one where we kind of going to have uh, components coming out right over a number of months um so it's hard to tell you know and we might arrive you know in three months time we might make a decision that you say instead of doing all these uh, these components we select only one or only two and we ship those right so it really yeah. it really depends it's a bit early to say. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like, uh, and I think you mentioned about four different people. Are there other people like actually working in this project, or are they like uh, the only people working on no. this? No, for this specific project, so I, they, those are the only people. And in fact, I have uh, Thomas is the design strategist that has been leading and doing the biggest chunk of the design strategy and ideation and uh, facilitation and workshops with users. And then uh, Heather is my senior UX researcher. So she's the one that has done all the survey and all the interviews, right? So I have like someone that is like leading all the research, one person that is leading all the design. And then I have Nicole. Nicole, she's more I a mean, technical uh, technical um, assessment analyst. So she does a lot of work on the technology part, you know, to, to ensure that we are all kind of, uh, kind of not making crazy ideas that they cannot be <laughs> developed. And then he's actually a content developer. So actually he does more uh, video animation, 3D renderings, he's more a kind of a layering person, right? So I, the, the biggest chunk of the work has been me and Thomas doing the uh, ideation and strategy and, uh, and Heather doing the research. Yeah, so it's so quite it's a, small, a small team with a lot of uh, responsibility, yes. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it, project, sounds really, yeah. It's, it sounds really uh, like a big project, but I think you also manage to get the best people like uh, leading all the different kinds. Of... Yeah, I have a wonderful team. I'm very, um, um, yeah, I'm very lucky. They're fantastic, yeah. uh, fantastic individuals and researchers, practitioners. Yeah. So there's a question here from Alfredo. Um, so Alfredo is uh, asking like, uh, is Mozilla doing work beyond free software like health and wellness project in for hardware developed by Mozilla? So yes, we do actually, um, we are like, um, well, obviously uh, well known, more known for uh, for the browser work, right? But that is our core product, right? So Firefox is our core, we look at it as a core, but then we have actually other products that are not the core, right? So Firefox is our, you know, uh, similarly, when I was at Intel, a parallel that I can make there is laptops, was our core product when I was there, right? But then we were also doing other stuff. We were doing tablets, we were also doing servers, you know, etc. Um, so similarly, um, the browser is our core, but we actually do other things. So for instance, you know, there are some that are on the market, right? As a um, um, open source um, products. One, for instance, that, you know, my team uh, is involved in is called Mozilla Hubs. And this is a virtual reality, uh, open source virtual reality um, platform that can be utilized both uh, on the browser as well as multiple browsers, as well as with, you know, goggles and kind of more VR goggles. And so that, for instance, is an example of a product that Mozilla does that is not the browser at all. We're doing things on voice products, um, uh, some machine learning, we're doing work on WebAssembly. So there's actually a quite a diversity of products that Mozilla does. It's just that we are happen to be more renowned for um, the browser, obviously, because it's our core uh, product. Um, now, the software versus hardware is a different thing because obviously we are more of a software. We are a software company, right? But that doesn't mean that um, um, we cannot partner, we do, with, uh, um, with hardware developers. So for instance, a good example that I gave is Hubs right because hubs basically is a virtual reality space and components of hubs work on the goggles and that's we don't make goggles we don't make any of that hardware why would we it doesn't make any sense but we partner with companies that make the hardware right so we can kind of together collaborate and bring to the uh, a product to the, to the market that is beneficial for both the uh, in this case the vr goggles manufacturers and for mozilla so we kind of there is ways and again it's interesting um, as a question because is the opposite of when i was at intel at intel we're more we were more a silicon and a hardware and therefore, quite often, the software was done in collaboration with software companies and partners, right? And so here in Mozilla is the opposite. We do the software parts where kind of more our strength and core competency, but we also work with hardware companies when needed to. Well, thank you. Uh, also, like a, a question, there, there was a question before, but somehow my chat uh, was closed. Uh, but it was a question from Dimas. Uh, Dimas was asking, like, uh, which one do you choose? Like, uh, do you choose 
like a user center design or participatory design or how do you like uh, make a decision between those two you know it's really it's really like i mean i look at participatory design and user centered design as cousins or sisters or you know they're very related right and and in a way they're very related and so you know for instance you can do a user centered design process that has got some components that are participatory right because you know you may utilize uh, you may have a user centered process but maybe you may run a few workshops with end users where the end users may have ability to participate and so you're really not having user participation throughout but you have some some participation every now and then right and so it's really like uh, i don't think it's really a matter of at least the way i see it you know uh, I try, the way I see it in my perspective is I try to be as participatory as I can. Some products, some process, some uh, com companies, some contexts, some time envelopes enable me to be more participatory and sometimes a bit less because maybe you don't have enough time to do it, right? And so my advice is, it's not really about yes or no, you know, one, one or the other, it's about try given the envelope of time and the task you're given to include as much participation and inclusion of the user as you can, as you can, right? Uh, because I mean, uh, if you are in an R&D organization, you're going to have longer time frames. If you're in academia, you've got even longer time frames, right? But if you are in a product, you're going to have less. And so, of course, you cannot involve the user in every single decision you make because you don't have the time. Then you need to make a choice, right? But the important part here is to try to do your best to involve the end user as much as you can. I think that is a way of looking at it. So I guess it also answered Rasita's question as well. So we have to really, like, if I summarize it, then we have to really look uh, each project differently and then make a call like uh, where like uh, how long we are we need yeah. to do the participatory design isn't it um, yeah i mean you really need to you know like my business by the way is not just about in my opinion not only participatory versus user center is actually the every time you have a project you need to design how you're going to tackle the project and there is never a project identical to the other one because you're going to have different clients, you're going to have different user problem, you're going to have different things you need to get done. And so because of that, regardless of user-centered and participatory, you need to customize your process. It's never, I mean, I've never done two projects in my entire career that were identical and I took and copy exact. It's impossible to do a good job that way. You always need to personalize and customize because the timelines, because the client, because the focus area, because of the technology, because of the market. So you always need to adapt your methodology to the context, right? And so here is the same, right? Uh, and so, you know, there is a range uh, um, of extremes of how much you know top participation of the user and zero participation my advice is try to go as much as you can i lost you are you still there yes we are still here i can still I, like my computer completely just went blank sorry about that <laughs> just everything just turned off for a microsecond of panic <laughs> so you know it's basically if you look at it as a sliding scale from maximum participation in everything and zero participation is you will different projects you'll have to kind of scale right try to consider every time you customize your design of the process in a way that tries to involve users as much as you can within the context that you're given because not there not two projects are always the same and i don't know i never had two projects that were the same in my entire life so it's always kind of you have always to modify um in the same way in which you modify your hypothesis and your research question you need to modify what tools you use and why right you have a bag of tools you've got a big box full of tools and depending on the context you go in your big box and say okay for this context i need to do this and this for sure and if i have the time i do also this this and that right and so you design your, your, your process customized to the context. Thank you. Uh, we got, we still have a two, um, two questions here, like, a, yes. and I was just wondering, but because some people, they have to leave very soon, uh, back to their work. So, uh, I was just wondering, maybe we should just take a picture together while everyone is still here because we started. Yes, sure. To That'd be lovely. Yeah. yeah. 
And yes, uh, then we can continue the discussion like another yes, uh, yes. five or ten minutes. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. So everyone, can you please? Uh, I, yeah, take take a picture. I I could only take like uh, eight of them. No, nine of you. So if you can help taking pictures from your side and share it to uh, my side. Yeah, yeah, from your side, you like. Yeah, so everyone... okay, let me do because I see. So like, let me change the look though because you have it. I have it as a corral. I'm going to second, and I think I can do an entire um, layout where I see all of you at the same time with the tiles. So yeah. that's much yeah. better. Okay. Well, I'm. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's take a picture and then like a please share it on um, on the on the feeds or on on the stories and then we can put it. Uh, okay. Well, one, two, three, and. Uh, Oh, no, wait, 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 everybody, like, open your camera. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. So, if you can yeah. share yours uh, to us, uh, that would be great. Then now uh, we can have, like, everybody, uh, you know, like, a photo version. <laughs> it's it's different from it's different from Zoom. You can take a, uh, other, uh, everyone's yeah. photo, but here is now. Uh, yeah, uh, well... Uh, let's continue the discussion for um, for the last uh, two questions. So it's a question from Daisy. Daisy was asking like, um, how does how do you conduct uh, participatory design uh, online, especially uh, during the uh, COVID situation? <laughs> Yeah, we are having we are having these uh, these issues being really hard actually. Right now, we've been doing. Uh, um, I can tell you some of the things, and you know, by, we're constantly exper experimenting. By the way, so we've done workshops where we utilize in parallel Zoom and uh, Miro. So we create basically a mirror board, we curate it, we organize it in a way that mimics uh, the type of shape we want the workshop to have with the users. And then we have a video kind of feed with the, the, with the um, with Zoom and we create uh, sometimes uh, smaller groups discussion because Zoom gives you the ability to sort of separate and have breakout rooms. So we use that as a substitute for what normally would have been a workshop in our lab. We can do that right now. Um, we do a, a lot of, well, one-on-one -on -one interviews are a bit simpler because you can do it on Zoom and that's fine. We're also doing a lot of unmoderated research, uh, more than we would have done normally, in the sense that, for instance, we are uh, using a tool that enables us, but there are multiple on the market, that enables us to have the user respond to prompts by sending us videos, video recordings of themselves. And so before, you know, we would go in people's homes and uh, ask them to do a, a tour of their house to see. And now what we do, if we cannot do it in the course of the one-on-one -on -one interview, we actually give prompts, like cultural probes type prompts. We give them the prompts and then we ask them to respond in the, in the form of a one-minute video. And then they sent us the video and they basically show us part of their homes. They show us uh, how they do certain things. They respond to specific questions, but on their own terms. They might show us uh, how they use the technologies, how they they meet with people, depending on the question. So we do a little bit of that too. Uh, we would do it before also, but we are at, we have to increase the amount of that because, of course, we cannot go in people's homes. So we need to have the user if they cannot take us through their home. Uh, with the camera sometimes it's complicated when you're in a zoom call to take around the house is not doesn't work very well and so we basically try to find a way for them to become our ethnographers if you like <laughs> collect uh, visual audiovisual data for us and then they send it to us and then we analyze and then we go back and sometimes we do it before doing the interview as a warm-up so you do that then we look at the videos, we look at the visual data, and then we use that as a basis for the interview so we can ask more specific questions. But it's hard. I mean, it's a, um, it's a tough one, you know. But, you know, we use the technology that we have available. That's what you have to do. And we're lucky that there is technology available, you know. Well, right now, like, there are plenty of things that we can use, actually. It's, it's very, very exciting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's different. But, I mean, you know, so we had to shift... Uh, Within a week, we shifted everything. We just went, okay, we have to do it differently, you know. <laughs> you know, instead of panicking, we panicked for like half an hour and they were like, 
okay, we need to get stuff done. So no time for panic. We need to go and hit the ground, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, sometimes, like I heard from a lot of people, they, they find it very difficult to communicate uh, because yes. people usually do not communicate like verbally so much. And um, with yes. this user research, sometimes if the facilitators are not good enough or the user are too quiet, then you don't really yes. get the real, uh, you know, insight from the users. <laughs> yeah. You know, this thing about, you know, is a very good point you're making, Eunice, because uh, we found that the doing the um, unmoderated uh, prompts, video prompts, because nobody's there, right? They're taking the videos on themselves. Nobody is checking them. And so actually we found that users that normally would be a bit more shy, more introspective, they feel a little bit more free and, and okay, because there is nobody there to look at them in that moment and therefore they actually open up more easily because they get an opportunity to respond. We also move them uh, digitally, you know, quite often um, I always, you know, in, in many user interviews, I, I use a lot of tools. I like to ask questions, the same question in different ways. So, you know, for instance, I can ask you um, how uh, one to five, how much do you like this concept, right? where one is low and five is high, and you give me a number. But I could ask you, okay, here is a bunch of pictures. If you had to pick three pictures out of these pictures that tell me what you think about this project, this, this concept, which pictures would you pick? If you had to pick, you know, it would pick uh, three words out of this list of words, which words would you pick? If you had to pick emotions from this list of emotion, which emotion would you pick? And I like to do that because just asking a rating of appeal or usefulness, you know, one to five is only one way of asking the question. And I found that actually it's very useful to ask the same question, utilizing different um, modalities, uh, auditory, visual, etc. because people respond very differently and you create a richness, right, in the process that just asking the rating or what do you think, tell me about it, you know, and they speak is not enough right and so we had usually in one-on-one -on -one interviews we have a stack of cards that we customize them print we have got you know all these tools that are printed and laminated to utilize but now we can do that and so now we've got all these things we have to transfer them on our online tool and it's actually been very interesting because now you know normally in the interview they would choose picture for instance and then talk about them but then again, because we're not there and sometimes they do it no moderated, they give us way more information that we even asked for and, and which is fantastic, yeah. right? Um, so it's been very interesting to see, you know, there are pros and cons of this and there's a lot of pros that we did not anticipate, actually. Yeah, well, that's that's very interesting. Uh, that Rasita, sees it. she's very happy and with the answer, but she has to go. I think we should go to the last one. <laughs> the last one. Questions from Soraya. Soraya is in. Are you in Brazil or in Mexico, Soraya? Uh, so she's asking, like, how would you describe the differences from conducting PD in industry compared to academy? Massive. <laughs> Actually, I, have, I wrote a paper. I wrote a paper about this many years ago, when I was still at Intel, because when I moved from academia to industry, a big industry like Intel. I went there like, I'm going to do food PD the way I kind of want to do it. And then you're like, yeah, no, you can't do that, right? It's impossible because you're in a product uh, a product team. The timelines are like whoop, really short, right? And you need to get done stuff fast, right? And, and so I actually wrote a paper on that where what I found is that I had to hybridize the practice. That's how I call it, right? Where you had to find ways to create hybrid ways of tackling it because if you are in a very compressed time envelope and you've got a lot of uh, um, pressure from a time a timeline perspective as well as economic time perspective as well as um, you know product management perspective engineering perspective etc right you've got all these pressures and they really are getting in the way of doing the pure PD process as I would like to do. And so you need to make a call. When I said earlier, right, you know, there is a range between zero and 100%. 
you really need to make a call and you can almost never do 100. It's very hard to do the purest 100% PD process in industry because it requires many years to do it properly, right? It requires a lot of extra time. It's a very time-consuming process. And industry sometimes doesn't have that time. Luxury of time doesn't exist, right? And so you need to hybridize. You need to make your call of what is that you cannot compromise. This is absolutely a stick in the ground that I will not move. And this is one where maybe it's okay, given the context, this I can sacrifice, right? And so you need to make a call. And you need to hybridize also the practices because you need to find ways to be faster. And so I actually can send you, if you want, Eunice, I've got two or three papers that I wrote when I was at Intel on how to sort of try to be as true to you, my PD practice as I could within an envelope that was really not the best context for PD practice. The, the PD practice in the traditional way, of course, you know, like the more purest the academic traditional way, right? But there is a lot of people that do it in industry now. So there are good examples all over. But it's not the same. Can't be purest in industry. <laughs> I can't hear you anymore now. I lost you. Oh, now oh, I can. can you hear me now? Yeah. I, no, I, I don't can. want to. I don't want to turn on my mic because there was like a garbage uh, truck behind me. So you will hear. Okay. Well, it, I mean, like uh, it is very interesting. Um, like uh, to always to see uh, hear what you have in mind because, uh, you know exactly what is going on in the academy as well as what is going on in the industry and that's giving like a really bridge connection that a lot of people um you know like uh, they think oh well there is no ux in academic which is not right and which uh, there is no academic needed in the industry but you you uh, no. uh, do it really well present it really well and make this connection well, this is good, Daria. Thank you so much for Thank your you time. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, hopefully it was useful and helpful. Yes. Um, yeah, so I thank you everyone who stay uh, until this time. So we actually still have a lot of people here today. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, you get something from today uh, meetup. And uh, please tell us uh, how you think about this. And I'm um, in like uh, through the uh what is it like a uh, this bitly um just hold a second i'm going to uh type it here yeah tell us like uh, how you learn a lot from today i'm going to share it with daria so and uh also tell us if you want to uh get the link of the papers from daria on this yeah. uh, meet yes i can do you want me to send to you you need an email with some yeah. links and then you yeah. you distribute yeah, yeah i'll do that yeah I can I can share it to people who like fill out the 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 questionnaire. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's cheeky, isn't it? <laughs> okay. <You're funny. laughs> okay. No. All right. So, well, thank you so much, and then I think you need. Thank to you go. very much, everyone. Yes, uh, yes. for um, and uh, everyone needs to go back to work, and then you have to go uh, to your family, and uh, yeah, it's good. And I think like I'm I just like a rethink. Maybe we should do the meetup in the afternoon. What do you think, guys? Like do you do you prefer the meetup in the morning or in the afternoon or after hours? Which one do you prefer? Tell us on the chat. Like what do you think? Okay, well this is a uh, the new normal. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay. Well, thank you very much, everyone. It was wonderful getting the opportunity to present to all of you. And thanks, Eunice, again for inviting me. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll Bye. see you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye everyone. everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.